Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 20th of May with me, Ian Welsh. A few days ago, I spoke with Anant Ahuja, Head of Organisational Development at Shahi Exports, an Indian apparel manufacturer. We reflected on some of the discussions at the recent Innovation Forum Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference and in particular talked about how factories, suppliers and buyers can best work together to transition the apparel sector towards net zero emissions. Business models are changing, but it's certainly the case that many of the challenges and barriers to progress remain the same. Also coming up, we've got some news on the launch of Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference, which will be held in Amsterdam at the beginning of November. First, though, is some sustainable business news. Food supply impacts from the war in Ukraine remain a matter of acute concern. The head of the European Investment Bank, Werner Hoyer, has warned that 8 billion euros worth of wheat and other grains are stuck in Ukraine, unable to be exported because the Russian armed forces have effectively closed the Black Sea, the primary route for the grain to be shipped to market. The country was the sixth largest exporter of wheat in 2021, and the UN has warned that food and animal feed prices will continue to rise. Some estimates say more than 20%, with inevitably the poorest impacted the most. New research from Carbon Tracker has assessed the emissions mitigation at the world's 15 biggest public oil and gas companies. Of these, 14 have committed to net zero, but the new Absolute Impact report says that these commitments are lacking in credibility. Chevron is the only one of the companies to not commit to net zero. Of the companies that have set net zero targets, 11 do not include some or all Scope 3 emissions in their targets, a fairly dramatic omission given Scope 3 indirect emissions account, for example, for 95% of ExxonMobil's total emissions. Carbon Tracker also points to a lack of interim target setting with only four, any Repsol, Total and BP, committing to cutting emissions on an absolute rather than intensity basis by 2030. The most ambitious of these is BP, with a commitment of cutting emissions by up to 40% by 2030. But even this does not meet the IPCC's target of cutting global emissions by half by 2030 to have any chance of meeting a 1.5 Celsius warming pathway. As we reported at its launch in 2019, the Alliance to End Plastic Waste is a $1.5 billion cross-industry initiative involving manufacturers, consumer brands and retailers to develop closed-loop solutions to limit the amount of plastic in the environment. The Alliance now boasts 70 members have been launched at 26 and has just announced a new $500 million circular plastic fund to develop new initiatives to improve recycling infrastructure, collection and sorting and projects that develop new plastic materials that are more easily recycled. The Alliance has been subject to criticism, not least when it dropped a flagship Oceans Plastic Initiative in 2020. Greenpeace attacked the group as only being in existence to generate positive headlines and being a front for big oil. Certainly a number of oil companies were founder members, but the Alliance has continually pushed back, pledging to continue expanding membership to include all sector stakeholders to work together to deal with the plastic pollution challenges. Hopefully the new circular plastic fund will help. Tesco and WWF have moved to the next stage with their new Innovation Connections Accelerator programme, which we featured on the Innovation Forum podcast a couple of months ago. The scheme is designed to help promising sustainability initiatives be adapted at scale in food supply chains by identifying Tesco suppliers that can help scale up new ideas and technology. Entrepreneurs have been paired with suppliers to pitch projects applying the new ideas in a real-world context to receive up to £150,000 in funding support. The final pitches have been taking place this month, with the winners to be announced shortly. And I'll be talking to some of them in the next few weeks for the podcast, so look out for those interviews over the summer. 
The Innovation Forum team is excited that in the autumn we'll be bringing back in person our Future of Plastics conference and our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities event, both in Amsterdam. To find out more a bit about the Landscapes conference, earlier this week I spoke with Innovation Forum's Hannah Halmari. Welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks, Ian. Good to be back. So, Hannah, yeah, we're talking about our Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes event, which is coming up in November. We're back to face-to-face this year. What should delegates expect? Yeah, that's right. So we'll be coming together in Amsterdam on the 1st and 2nd of November. There'll be a two-day in-person forum. And as in the usual fashion, you know, we'll have a variety of session formats from plenary panels to focus breakout sessions. We're really looking forward to two days of closed door and candid discussions. We'll, of course, have a lot of time for networking as well. Being back in person, I know we're all looking forward to those face-to-face conversations. Absolutely. It's certainly been something that we've missed. And the one event that we had in the spring that was face-to-face, certainly everybody appreciated being back together for the vital conversations, whether it's over coffee, over a glass of wine or over lunch or whatever. But it certainly was great to be back uh, face-to-face. How's the agenda coming together, Hannah? What are the kind of key themes that are emerging at this stage? So we've just launched with the event and you can now find the agenda online on the conference site. As always, we're covering a wide range of the most pressing and urgent challenges in commodity supply chains. So we'll really be assessing how business can adapt sourcing practices to drive community resilience and tackle supply chain emissions. And we'll be focusing on forests, farmers, land and livelihoods. Key themes for sure, obviously taking things forward a bit from the conferences we've had over the past couple of years. Remind us, who is it that comes to these events typically? What are the sort of companies and organisations that get involved? We have senior executives join us from brands such as Nestle, Colgate Palmolive, Mondelez, McDonald's, Unilever, Mars, Tesco, AB InBev and many, many more. You'll have the chance to hear from CEOs and business leaders, key activists and NGOs, finance, government representatives, farmers, and other supply chain actors. Great. And I think the key thing is we do try to bring together all the key players and have the difficult conversations that are necessary to make significant progress. How can listeners get involved, Hannah? Registration for the event is now open. So if you register before next Friday, the 27th of May, you'll be saving £500 on your ticket. You can head over to the conference website and register there. And of course, feel free to email me at hannah.halmari at innovationforum.co.uk with any questions or to learn more about the speaking and sponsorship opportunities that we have available. We're still quite a long way out, aren't we? So there are plenty of opportunities available for anyone that wants to get involved, either as a speaker or as a sponsor. And Hannah, as you said, great time to register. £500 saving if you register for your passes before close on the 27th of May. Well, Hannah, looking forward to bringing the event together. It's been looking forward very much to a few days in Amsterdam in November. Thanks, Ian. The Innovation Forum Spring Conference Programme will continue with the Future of Climate Action event online from the 7th to 9th of June. And we'll be joined by experts from Diageo, Nestle, Intel, Mattel, Glasgow, SmithKline, Unilever and many more. And the Spring Conference season is completed on the 14th to 15th of June with the in-person Future of Food Conference in Minneapolis in the US, with panels featuring the likes of Cargill, Kellogg, PepsiCo, Kraft Heinz, Mondelez and Danone. I'm also looking forward to going to Stockholm for the UN Environment Programme World Environment Day celebrations at the beginning of June. Innovation Forum will be hosting a live webinar in Stockholm, along with our partners at Everland, talking about how private sector investments via the voluntary carbon markets and verified emission reduction credits are helping to end deforestation, protect threatened wildlife and fund significant economic development activities for local communities. I'll be speaking with experts from forest projects in Kenya, the DRC, Colombia and Canada. Details of how to sign up for the webinar or to receive the recordings are available on the Innovation Forum website or in the newsletter. 
And our partners Everland are also hosting other events in Stockholm coinciding with the launch of their Forest Plan, including a concert for climate on Saturday 4th of June. You can attend online for free. Links are in the newsletter and in the podcast description. Coming up now is a conversation I had a few days ago with Anant Ahuja, Head of Organisational Development at Indian garment factory business Shahi Exports. Well, we're going to reflect a little bit on some of the conversations from the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference, which Anant and I were at a few weeks ago. Why don't you start off by giving us a very quick introduction to Shahi Exports. Shahi is a large garment manufacturer based here in India. We have factories across nine states in the country, and there's over 50 factories and a workforce of over 100,000 full-time employees. One more thing I could add is Shahi has vertically integrated operations. So that means not only do we do garment manufacturing, but textile manufacturing as well. We talked at the conference about the challenges for the apparel sector and its emissions, and particularly scope three for apparel sector brand. From your perspective, Anand, given that brands are pledging to transition their supply chain scope three emissions to net zero, what are the principal challenges that this presents to suppliers? It's something we've been thinking about a lot. And just for your audience, this may seem obvious, but when a brand makes a commitment to reduce their scope three emissions, essentially they're talking about the emissions from their supply chain. So from manufacturers like ourselves, and that's where most of the carbon footprint tends to be across the entire supply chain much more than their offices and stores. So yeah, the first challenge is just understanding and aligning with customers, with brands and retailers. But in terms of the implementation, a major challenge is the limited technology that's available, coupled with the high investments, which essentially lead to a really high return on investment period. If something has 10 years before you see a return on investment, it's definitely harder for a company to make that investment. What specifically are you being asked to do by your customers? There's a lot of impacts that garment manufacturing has. There's a lot of resources that get used. In terms of energy consumption and emissions, there are targets where by 2030, some of our customers want us to be powered by 100% renewable energy across all our units. It's not that far away if you think about it, but we're really positive on our ability to do this. When we look at this target, we're looking at internally a goal we have for ourselves to achieve by 2026. Shahi works with a lot of brands and retailers around the world. Each of them may have their own set of targets, but I'm going by maybe what the most ambitious targets could look like. You're talking about internal target of renewable energy by 2026. How are you going to do that? So far, we've been able to make a lot of progress. So right now, 70% of our electricity consumption is powered by renewable energy. And the way we did that was through two big investments in solar power plants. So these two plants have a total capacity of 84 megawatts. We also have windmill capacity of 8.7 megawatts. All of this has been achieved in the last eight or nine years. It's something that the management at Shahi has been focused on due to our understanding of the trends across the industry, but also our own ambitions. But it's really been enabled by government policies, obviously a continued focus on finding the right proposals. In the state where we ultimately set up the solar power plants, there was a really favorable solar policy that supported this investment that essentially allowed us to set up the solar power plant. And then we were able to manage the costs of transporting this energy. It's an offsite solar power plant. We generate electricity here. 
and then offset our own consumption. But transferring that to the grid, there's a lot of costs associated with doing that kind of stuff. And the local government's been really positive about supporting investors in this. So one way they did it essentially enabled us to set all of this up in the past few years. I guess it's a sort of insetting model, but a really interesting way to go about it. So do you think that brands accept that there are cost implications to all this change? And how are these costs typically shared across value chains in the apparel sector? I think brands know that there's cost implications. We've been having this back and forth dialogue for long enough where we can transparently share what it would take to make the investments to achieve the sort of targets that brands are setting and companies are trying to achieve. There's cost implications of actually investing in the new technologies and innovations. There's costs for audits to make sure that things are running as per plan. For the latter, for the audit costs, there's definitely an understanding that those costs need to be shared or fully taken on by brands and retailers. But at the same time, the investments, there isn't a clear model on how to do it. There's a lot of different models out there. And a lot of different ways that brands and retailers can support or co-invest with their suppliers. Everything from supporting the initial investments. So if there's an upfront cost or if there's cost of exploring certain options, that could sometimes be borne by brands and retailers. I think the cost sharing could also be built into how the business transactions are done. So for example, if a brand is working with a supplier factory and they book the entire capacity so it's like the, whole, the factory's only making goods for that one or two brands, that can create an incentive or at least a ability for those types of investments to happen where they could say, look, we see this factory, we want to take ownership over the direction in which this factory develops. So we'll introduce new technologies, maybe we'll actually invest in these. Honestly, the simplest way is if a factory can receive a forecast where it's like for the next three years, these are the orders that you'll be receiving. Even that security or that kind of stability can incentivize the right types of investments. Essentially, what that means is there's a long-term perspective on running that factory, on, on having orders, not worrying about the marketing or securing orders. That's just a range of ways it could be done. I'm sure there's many more out there. There's many more better buying practices or just different ways that these dialogues could happen. Are you finding that brands are more prepared to establish longer term relationships in light of these sort of changes that they're requesting? I think so. I want to be optimistic and say, yes, I can't speak for everyone, but this is definitely a factor much more so than before. So I would say it's weighted more than it was before. It's not the only factor. I think it's not that black and white. It's a really competitive industry. So for example, if there is a cost advantage that a brand is seeking, Maybe it's for a specific product or collection where they have to prioritize that. There could still be questions about, okay, are we able to establish this long-term relationship? Largely as a strategy, there is a consolidation that brands are doing. Some brands may have thousands of suppliers and it's a complicated supply chain even for them to manage. There's a lot of other strategic reasons why developing deeper relations makes sense from a supply chain management point of view. I do think this trend is starting to be talked about more. It's becoming more mainstream. I think it's still specific to certain orders or certain types of orders. I wouldn't say it's the dominant practice, but I do feel like overall, because of the impacts of COVID, because of the ways in which these targets are quite ambitious and we're seeing the need to accelerate on them, because of the ease of managing a less distributed supply chain, 
I think that this conversation has come much more to the forefront now. What are the barriers for you getting to a net zero position and what does a potential route to net zero look like? We're encouraged by the fact that we've already been able to achieve 70% in terms of renewable energy. We're working on the proposals to increase our solar energy capacity, making more investments there. So that's showing us a clear path, but it's still really high investment. It's not clear if this is a scalable model that we'll continue to be able to do. And I say that from the point of view, if, if our operations grow, if we continue to add factories, obviously the demand for energy grows as well. So can we keep up with that growth of production with the growth of our investments in renewable energies? And then there's still barriers when it comes to the actual technologies. There are a lot of existing technologies out there, but there may be some aspects of this transition that requires us to use whether it be fossil fuels or non-renewable sources of energy. When you get down to the details, achieving 100%, you could be held back by a small percent in a special case that would prevent you from staking this claim. And then even if you do achieve it, maintaining it with the growth of your other operations could be a challenge that suppliers may face. I guess there's a, the other side of it is that if you are moving towards 100% renewables, particularly if you're generating your own energy, that gives you security of supply. We're in a world where it's unclear the kind of energy security is, is a big issue right now. Moving to your own renewable sources of energy gives you that security of supply. I mean, is that a factor in, in your thinking? Yeah, 100%. We're seeing, for example, fuel prices are really high right now. The price of oil here in India has, has shot up as it has across the world. That has a lot of effects spillover effects at every level, really. And it's just kind of a sign, I guess, that securing more diverse sources of energy is, is important. And it's also important considering the limitations that some renewable energies may have. So for example, when you talk about solar energy, where most of our investment is, there's obvious limitations to that just based on nature, right? We can't always rely on it during heavy rainfall or maybe during winters. It's seasonal in that sense. So what is the best way to complement something like that? Having that almost diverse portfolio of sources is also a thought when you start to get to the vision of having 100% renewable energy. Let's think a little bit about some of the other challenges for you. What are the difficulties, the challenges for apparel factory owners at the moment and how are they changing? I think that environmental sustainability is half of the work when it comes to building a more responsible or sustainable supply chain. The other half is obviously when you look at the social impacts, worker well-being in general. The garment sector, like many other manufacturing industries, is labor intensive. So there's a lot of people's lives that are directly impacted. A lot of workers directly employed by factories. Understanding the challenges that workers face, honestly, bringing it back to the environmental topic, we're seeing how the two issues are colliding in certain ways. In parts of India, there's a heat wave going on. So climate change is starting to show itself in these different ways. By heat wave, I'm talking about like extreme temperatures. A lot of factories don't have air conditioning. Maybe they have some form of cooling, but not a sophisticated air conditioning system. We know that when temperatures are really high, productivity drops. Not just that, you know, there's actual health concerns of heat waves as well. Climate change and worker well-being is a sort of, I guess, a new set of issues we haven't thought about as much, but it represents both sides in a unique and concerning way. There's a whole aspect of how do we use our resources better? How do we conserve them? 
How do we reduce our negative impact, but also how do we increase our positive impact on the environment? And then how do we continue to develop and improve our relationship with the employees that work in our factories, the employer-employee relationship? How do we ensure that there's good and safe working conditions? What it means to have safe working conditions has changed because of things like these heat waves, climate change, other issues like COVID affecting livelihoods. At least from my perspective, a lot of it has to do with that. There's obviously operational challenges as well when it comes to things like logistics and everything you're seeing in the context of the supply chain impacts that we've seen coming out of COVID. Just thinking about the heat wave you're experiencing, yeah. are you having to change your working practices? Are you having different working hours? I mean, that obviously has knock-on implications for workers with families and everything yeah. else, but real challenge, I guess. It is a real challenge. There's small steps that we've taken, but the infrastructural changes are much harder to make depending on the factories. A lot of our factories, we've taken this strategy for the last 10 years or so, where instead of continuing to develop factories in these urban environments where cost of living goes up, availability of labor is limited, there's a lot of competing jobs available, transportation issues, and so many different things. We have deliberately and consciously been trying to take our factories closer to rural parts of the country where there's less jobs available, there's more labor available. India is still predominantly an agricultural economy. Garment manufacturing is a great first step into the formal economy for a lot of people, specifically for women. That strategy has helped us because when you set up a greenfield factory in a rural part of the country, Firstly, you have more space. So all our rural factories are single floor units, really high ceilings, optimized for ventilation. A lot of basic engineering has gone into the development of these factories to ensure that it's a comfortable environment inside. We set goals such as having a shop floor that's five degrees cooler than the outside temperature. In rural parts of the country, you don't have the same environmental stresses so pollution isn't as big of a problem, which in cities like Delhi, Bangalore, and so on, urban places in India is a major issue. And we know that that can affect productivity as well. And of course, health and well-being. So half of our solution is, again, it's a long-term thing. Actually, around half our factories now are located in rural parts of the country where a lot of these issues are minimized. They're not completely erased, but definitely minimized. In the urban environments where we do still have manufacturing there's a limit to what we can do at an infrastructural level. It's hard to take a building that is multiple floors, install air conditioning, or change the ventilation or things like that. But things that have been done are, like I was saying, much smaller steps. So we would consider shifting the timing, starting earlier, ending earlier, making sure that all our factories, the medical units in these factories are equipped in case of anyone who's experiencing dehydration or any effects of the heat waves. So things like electrolytes, glucose, whatever ways we could address those concerns and essentially just keeping track of the issues. So being able to stay in touch with workers, understand how it's affecting them and then what steps we can take, obviously avoiding any serious issues, emergencies, but at the same time, just constantly being able to monitor the situation. Well, the thing I do want to talk about, and it's something that's been an issue in the apparel sector for years, the auditing issue with uh, your customers and your brands auditing you and all different types of audits and essentially the issue of, of audit fatigue. Are you seeing collaboration amongst brands and buyers and your customers, collaboration around 
trying to counter audit fatigue and similar challenges? And how's that changing? Audit fatigue has been an issue for a really long time. I've had the opportunity through peers and others to get a deep understanding of the history of audits and compliance. And I've also been working really closely with the compliance team at Shahi. Shahi is a good example of how the system has created audit fatigue, but also how it's evolving. And the reason I say that is because we have 50 factories, so it's a huge sample size, but we also have over 50 customers, right? At one stage, that meant over 50 standards to adhere to, to firstly understand, then to adhere to, and then to be able to demonstrate our compliance and ongoing compliance, right? It's not like just once you just get checked once. It's like something you have to remain, the standards you have to maintain consistently. That's the perspective we're coming at this from. I am pretty optimistic about how this is changing. Two really strong examples are the HIG index for environmental audits. It's a common standard, a platform that a lot of brands and retailers are adopting. Shahi's been part of HIG from the early days, I think in 2013 or 14, during their early pilots. And now a lot of our factories undergo HIG assessments, which qualify for a lot of the brands and retailers we work with. Another strong example that we're seeing is SLCP, essentially the social compliance version of HIG. That's a newer standard that's starting to become more mainstream and starting to become accepted by a lot of our customers. The day that all customers accept both these standards, it will definitely reduce audit fatigue for us where you could have a factory that's producing for 10 customers and then those 10 customers want to do regular audits and they all do it on their own. It's almost like every day or every few days you're having these audits done. But if we can submit all our data through the HIG portal, through those assessments, then our social and compliance data through SLCP, that presents a really simplified version of what we're going through now. And in fact, I sat on a panel with a representative of SLCP and one of your colleagues at yeah. the conference a few weeks ago. Let's go back to thinking about decarbonization in the sector. How do you think the sector can collaborate to work together to decarbonize and deal with all the challenges around the decarbonization of the, of the sector? Let me try to list off a bunch of points. It's just some things I've been thinking about since we've started this conversation. I think the first is advance or more timely payments. Right now, if we produce an order and get paid six months later, as the current standards tend to be, that does make cash flow an issue. And when it comes to investments, it can be hard for suppliers like us. And I think also some suppliers, maybe more than others, may have difficulty in accessing credit. And even just making these investments on credit, of course, can have its own challenges. There's an issue of cash flow. I know a lot of industries, other industries, don't have these same payment terms. I think we could learn from other best practices. I think more joint investments in technology. So some of these investments can be quite large, but if a brand knows that they're going to be using up most of the capacity in a factory and they've projected to do that for a certain amount of years, I think that could form the basis of saying, let's jointly invest in this technology and we can share the returns or the returns could be built into the costing or other things. And that brings me to my next point. Just, I guess this is a more simple one, but if brands can take more steps towards developing long-term commitments with suppliers by providing these order projections, that can help incentivize more substantial investments. We've seen this happen a little bit, but if suppliers can actually be evaluated in a balanced way, where there is a reward system or a recognition for the companies that are 
making efforts to reduce their scope three emissions. I think sometimes there can be a disconnect. Like I've said before, often we see ourselves as an extension of our customers. So if they set a target, we know we need to work to achieve that. And that attitude is, I guess, fostered by the type of relationship brands can develop with their supply chain. We've been able to experience that in some cases, and I think that's definitely shaped our thinking. I think there's opportunities for brands and suppliers to work together to advocate for better policies or incentives, maybe even subsidies, because we've seen how that's actually enabled certain investments. And just to wrap up, maybe two more things I could share. I think innovation in product development is something we need to continue to explore. We recently developed a cradle-to-cradle certified gold product with one of our customers, CNA. That exercise, although it took maybe two years or so, gave us a lot of confidence that this can be done through partnership, collaboration, and just the right intentions. And of course, this is what we need if we're trying to move towards more circular ways of manufacturing. Finally, I would say that research and development needs to be a big focus because a lot of what we're trying to do, these are stretch targets in a lot of cases. With the current technologies or solutions that are out there, we may not be able to actually achieve these targets. In that case, can we work with innovators? Can we start doing research and development to make sure that the demands and challenges are clearly understood by the innovators? I think there's a lot of great companies out there doing this work and great research institutes as well. That's maybe the list that I have in my mind right now. What I'm hearing is um, it's all about collaboration, and that's something that came yep. out of the event and the other conversations we've been having about the apparel sector. It's all about different types of collaboration, collaboration between peers at a brand level and at a factory level, but across the industry as well. And that's the only way that the challenges, including decarbonisation, but also the social challenges, that's the only way that they're going to be properly addressed. And Ant, uh, it's been great to hear your enthusiasm, and I'm delighted you're so optimistic, and it'd be great to see how these things all come to fruition going forward. But for now, Anant Ahaji from Shahi Exports, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. And don't forget that you can save £500 if you register for this year's Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum in Amsterdam on the 1st and 2nd of November before close on the 27th of May. Everything you need to know about this and the Innovation Forum Spring Event Series is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.